Well, hello, and welcome to the Pro Tips for Musicians podcast. I'm your host, Jim Henry. I'm proud to announce that the Pro Tips book is finally available. 50 Pro Tips for Musicians, Practical Advice for an Impractical Business. It contains many of the tips we've discussed here on the podcast, personal insights about each one, and features original illustrations by Ruby Henry. To order your copy today, go to protipsformusicians.com. Funding for this and every show comes from generous listeners who each contribute a small amount every month. Patrons like Dan Zuckergood, Maria Sangiolo, Bob Fishman, Dan Tappan, Kristen Andrews, the good folks at Club Passim, The Parlor Room, and Signature Sounds are just a few of the listeners who contribute because they believe in the podcast. This ongoing support makes it possible for me to continue to produce shows. For as little as $2 a month, you can be a part of the Pro Tips family. In return, you'll get access to outtakes, music, and videos not available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash jimhenry to find out more, or to make a one-time only donation, go to protipsformusicians.com. Today on the show, we have expert luthier Trevor Healy. Trevor has been building and repairing guitars since graduating from the Roberto Venn School of Luthery in 1999. Since then, he's worked at revered companies such as Sadowski Guitars in New York, Gary Brauer Guitar Repair in San Francisco, and Zong Guitars in Redwood City, California. He opened his own shop, Healy Guitars, in 2011 and immediately became the go-to luthier here in Western Massachusetts. Trevor is meticulous in his work and inventive in his approach to building and repairing instruments. His love of the craft is evidenced by the care he takes with each instrument that comes into the shop and with each owner. Trevor is also an accomplished and soulful guitarist, having recorded a wonderful instrumental album called Catch No Eye, available on Bandcamp. I'm so glad he was able to find the time to sit down and talk with me on the Pro Tips podcast. So let's say hello to Trevor Healy. Hello, Trevor Healy. How you doing? <laughs> Good. Thank you for thank you for doing this. It's a pleasure to be a part of it. Yeah. So we're here at your shop, Healy at Healy Guitars, mm-hmm. in uh, East Hampton, Massachusetts. In the Eastworks building. In the Eastworks, it's you know hard to find, but it's it's worth the trip. All right. <laughs> so you've heard a few of these shows, and you know uh, when it's possible, I like to start off with a playing a song. Yeah. With the guest. Definitely. Well, Indian Motorcycle. Even though it's in open C, like which is major, yeah. it's a minor tune. Right. So that's kind of a fun thing to mess around with. Okay. Want want to do that? Sounds good. Okay. Let's do that. Can I play uh, this other Healy guitar here? Absolutely. Okay.
Wow, what a great tune that is. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I was asked at some point to participate in writing music to accompany a no theater performance, N-O-H. A, a what theater performance? No theater. Uh, it's a Japanese form of um, sort of, I guess I would call it like interpretive storytelling. There's like dance involved and movement, but not necessarily like a musical theater, right, so right. to speak. Um, as far as I know, the project never happened. <laughs> but what I got was a really great poem called Indian Motorcycle. And I started writing music to accompany the text. Mm -hmm. So I gave it a melody and rhythm that was kind of inherent in the, in the wording. And I'd never worked like that before. Like, I don't, uh, I don't sing generally. <laughs> I don't write lyrics. Um, so that was really fun that kind of my, one of my favorite pieces of music that I've ever written Is it, came from source material, not just my brain right. happening upon a melody by improvising or something. Right. You had like a, you I, had a, you had an assignment sort of. I had an assignment yeah. and it turned out great. I've yeah. been kind of looking for those opportunities to, or, you know, I'm reading and I hear some sort of rhythm in a phrase that I've read, thinking about how can I, how can I do that right. again? Is this the right piece to do that with? Right, and it's, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I thought maybe it had. I mean, I'd be curious to, to see that poem. Yeah, <laughs> at some it's, point. So it's. Um, I forget the first line now, but the second line is like an Indian motorcycle. It's basically a, someone finding parts of an Indian motorcycle, the company, mm -hmm. you know, in Springfield mm -hmm. or Westfield that is in a river. And it's just one of the first lines of the thing. It just kind of caught me. I'm flipping through like pages of this person's poems and found that. They're from around here, I would assume. No. And when I, I wrote this in California, uh -huh. and I had no idea what Indian Motorcycle yeah. was. I didn't even look it up. I just thought it was unique. Huh. Like, maybe it was a Native American's right. motorcycle. Right, right, right. <laughs> like I really no, didn't. I mean, that's yeah. a pretty, it's a pretty esoteric yeah. reference. Yeah. yeah, totally. And I did, yeah, I, I didn't know. So I thought it was cool when I moved here, and I'm seeing this stuff all over the place. Hey, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. So it was it was the whole uh, the whole record or recording all the songs based on these poems was that or just on uh, my record yeah just that one um, they were all written or interpreted from material that I was working on over the last fifteen years twenty years there's a piece the last piece I wrote in college and performed at my senior recital. <laughs> um, so the looping that you hear in the background, which is just sort of a one, two, three, one, two, three, ostinato, is an acoustic guitar, two loops, playing roughly the same notes, but in different <clears throat> ranges on the guitar. And that would be in stereo, so it's sort of a bouncing left-right mm -hmm. effect. Mm -hmm. And... <clears throat> And me, you know, performing on top of that. You know, I, when I was doing my f college stuff, they didn't have loopers. 
<laughs> well, this was already 20 years ago, and I had bought basically one of the first generation, or the first generation boomerang pedal. Ah, uh, boomerangs. And I still have it, and it's it's quite noisy, uh-huh. but it's still the one that I can put on the floor and know exactly what I'm doing right? without any hesitation. So often I'll still use it despite some noise issues. Right, just because, yeah, you're familiar with it. I'm so familiar with it. I've tried other ones, and I don't feel the same thing. Uh-huh. I've thought about getting their new one, which is probably who, the best. Who makes it? It's that's. I don't know what the company is called, but that maybe it is called Boomerang. But yeah, it's just a small company. Yeah. They've kind of maintained like one level of popularity. It right. seems uh-huh. like it never really grew, but they're continuing to. Yeah, good for them. Yeah. <laughs> I for all I know, it's huge, bigger than I think it is. Right. <clears throat> so yeah, this says yeah, this is sort of a tangent we've gone off on. <laughs> um, so we, I, I wanted to have you on the show particularly because I'm a big fan of of your luthier stuff. Actually, awesome. what's the word? You luthier. You're a luthier. I'm a luthier. The the profession, the profession is called luthery. Luthery. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of people that would just say guitar maker. Right. Without getting into the <laughs> what what, what is the origin of luthier? Right. You know, lute maker or. Yeah. It's also used for violin makers. Yeah. So how did you how did you get started in this? Did you have to apprentice somewhere, or did, or what happened? So, I had been interested in guitar making. My father made a dulcimer that I remember seeing often. Both my parents play music. Um, they were in an old time string band, and growing up like just with instruments around, I knew that we went to the repair shop sometimes and got things fixed. When I started playing guitar, you know, I would find issues that I needed fixed. And there was a guy, Jim DeCava, that would pick things up at a music store. I never saw his shop, but I would get stuff back that was fixed and Mm. great. So there was like this knowledge of that being there. There's a fellow, George Youngblood in Connecticut, and that's where my dad would bring instruments. Is he still doing it? As far as I know. I know that the shop exists and that he has people that help run that shop. And so it's just an interest. uh, I would look at guitar magazines and see that there might be a feature like in Vintage Guitar, they would talk about guitar repair and feature a custom maker. So it just sort of tickled, tickled it, you. Yeah, it was something age. that was like, uh, it's, it's around, I know what it is. This could be something that I want to do. Um, and then I saw, I went to, started college to be a classical guitarist. Oh, no kidding. Um, <laughs> without really thinking to myself, I will have a career at this. It right. was just... I went to Skidmore College and the school was great. Joel Brown was the professor. We, I hit it off with him right away and I knew it was going to be a good thing for my guitar skills. Right. And I would be in music school and be taking anthropology courses. I was really interested in ethnomusicology. So I was also playing in bands. I went to a show and saw my friend 
who I hadn't seen in a while, and he had two instruments with him that he made. Oh. And he said, I went to Roberto Venn School of Luthery for the last six months. And it was instantaneous. I want to I wanna go and make instruments. And by the following semester, I had figured out, I'm going to go there. I'm taking a semester off from college. I'm going to Arizona. <laughs> I'm going to learn how to build guitars. How'd your parents react to that? Great. They were, they were cool with that? Yeah. yeah. Is, are you sure that's, that's what you want to do? Right. In retrospect, my dad was going, hey, I think you might have saved me like $15,000, <laughs> you know, right. um, or us, right. you know. Intuition and repair bills. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, you know, yeah, he's been a good customer. Um, but it was really seeing somebody my own age having built something. It didn't feel like it was a big hurdle that I'd have to go and apprentice for years and right. years. There's a school and they teach you how to do stuff. And I really took to it quickly. I would be the first one done with certain projects and want to be helping other people, you know, like, let's just stand at the sander together so I can see this again. Uh -huh. And that was kind of expected huh. too. You know, if you were done, you might not be at the next step for another two, three hours because the rest of the class needs to get through it. There's only a certain amount of tools despite there being 30 students. Right. So you would be kind of gathered around talking about things and figuring out what's what do you think the next step is? What are we going to do next? And you've got a whole folder of like the, the outline of what, what you're going to do throughout the course. And this was guitar building? Guitar building. Yeah. So we built an acoustic guitar and an electric guitar in five months. And the last month was sort of fine-tuning things. Uh, like if you wanted to do the nut again because you didn't nail it the first time, you had time to do that. Right. They would hand us repair work that the local community would bring in knowing that a student might work on it and they get a discounted yeah. repair rate. Uh-huh. So I did several neck resets um, on Martins and other things. Uh -huh. I remember almost sawing off a Yamaha gu guitar neck because it's like, well, this doesn't move with steam. <laughs> it was almost like throwing stuff at you, just going like experiment with this because it doesn't matter if it's getting trashed or not. Uh -huh. um, kind of like working on cadavers. <laughs> I would imagine, yeah, there's no harm, no foul, yeah, right. that kind of thing. Um, so you, you were doing neck resets in your first five months? Yeah, because there was somebody standing there at oh, their right, bench too. working uh -huh. and saying, okay, next, do this. Uh -huh. There were people that wouldn't go near it. I don't want to touch I'm not ready. You right. know? But, but you I were... felt pretty good. The teacher said, here, try this. Take Heat the bridge off. Here's the the heating element or... Now they're heating blankets. I don't. I think we might have had something sort of like a hot iron, uh -huh. approximately the size of the bridge. You get it heated up. You place it on it for five minutes, and the the heat transfers through the wood. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't hurt the wood, obviously. Only the, t the only the surface of the bridge usually. There's heating elements now. I use a heat lamp a lot to to weaken glue enough to take. I've parts. heard. I've heard. Uh, People use espresso machines. Yep, we have the off. espresso machine steamer. Yeah, that, for that's a real neck thing. Resets. Yeah, and there's even a really great new 
version for heating off necks, which is called the heat stick. And it's just an element that uh, a piece of metal that is getting heated directly in the glue joint. So it's completely dry. There's no steam flying everywhere. Hmm. That's a challenge in itself on a vintage instrument, making sure that the steam isn't weakening joints that it, you wouldn't otherwise want right, to weaken during the process. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that you can get what's called blushing when there's hot water on the surface of a, an old finish. And then you have to take care of that afterwards. Right. <laughs> so this thing, the heat stick, has been really great because it's high direct heat, which is maybe even more effective in certain situations. And it's a little bit faster. And that sort of overall scariness of steam flying into places you don't want it to is gone. There's a, so the fellow that came up with that is Ian Davlin and he works at Lark Street Music. Lark Street Music, yeah. Kind of a higher end vintage repair. That's uh, Duke Levine's brother. Oh yeah. Runs that show. Buzzy, right? Buzzy, yeah. Yeah. Buzzy Levine. Do you know Duke? No, I've never met him. Yeah. Um, so we got geeky real fast. <laughs> I, th- I thought maybe we'd work up to the, the geek part. Sure. But no, that was, you know, it's, I find this stuff fascinating because to me, the, the whole, the repair and, uh, you know, the, the setups and adjustments and stuff, it's like magic to me. I mean, I don't, it's, a, it's such an art form, it seems like. Yeah, there's a certain amount of magic to how I still see it. Um, a lot of the time, if a guitar comes in and I'm questioning how are we going to accomplish giving this a good setup, making right. it playable, moderately good action, what are we going to do to solve that problem? It's sometimes just sitting with the guitar and playing it, you start to feel, well, it's not that bad right here. It just is in the first position that right. it's weird. I can get, like, we might say, can you get past, where do you really play? Right. Oh, I just play cowboy chords. Great. Right. We don't have to actually, you know, remove the bridge right. and make a new bridge or reset the neck. We can play in the fretboard and do a refret with lower frets and kind of start to figure out how how to do it to make it work for you. For you, right. So it's not, you don't have a boilerplate kind of approach. No, so somebody might say, what do you charge for a setup? And it's this amount. And there's always, but right. I haven't seen it yet. Sometimes on a Gibson, the nut is already too low right. and there's a lot of relief in the neck. All right, let's, okay, let's, let's, let, so you're throwing around some stuff yeah, here that a lot of people know what it relief. means, but a lot of people don't. So, and that was one <laughs> thing uh, I want you to sort of talk about was what what is relief yeah. in a neck? What does that mean? Relief would be the amount of curvature in the neck, and what and in some and there's it's desirable to some extent, right? To some extent, you do need a little bit of relief and to why? allow the string to vibrate um, in its full, you know, true movement to get the whole. Way, sine wave or the whatever. whole wave yeah. yeah so a lower string has kind of a wider longer waveform so it moves in a wider 
uh, distance. Low, or you mean in lower string? You mean in terms of pitch? In terms yeah, of pitch. Yeah, the, the thicker. So string. the low E is thicker. Right. It's got a larger movement. So on an acoustic guitar, I often see a factory-made instrument that you can have the neck very, very straight on the bass side, but there's still relief on the treble side. And that's one of the worst situations for me to be in because when the bass side is too straight, where that would be no relief, if you put a straight edge ruler on it and the length of the fretboard has no gap above the frets to the straight edge. Right, it's just to the bottom of the, flush right totally on top of there. Totally flush. Yeah. You could potentially, if your action is lower, an action would be, the action is the string height above the fretboard. Right. So there's action at the nut, which is at the headstock end. Right. There's action at the bridge, which is controlled by the saddle, with is the, on an acoustic is the straight piece of bone that's, in the in the bridge so you adjust those two heights to accommodate that string movement for your desired you know picking style right um or like an average i i strum my finger pick i'm doing all sorts of different things if that is dead straight you might get buzzing f f sharp g g sharp and then it starts to get clean again but if you raise the saddle, you could eventually get to a point where it's high enough to play cleanly on every note. But then the treble side is still has relief. So your first position sounds great. It starts feeling high, and then suddenly you're fretting out. So the right. string above the fret that you're fretting starts hitting each of those right. it's all pingy and yeah because fuzzy. the curvature is going back up at the end of the fretboard so the, well the I didn't I didn't realize that I assumed that the fretboard was either you know had relief as a whole or your goal or is definitely to have it as a whole or fine tune it before fretting it right to to do what you want in a given situation right. but ideally they move in parallel right so the the guitar that you're describing with the with no relief on the bass side and some relief on the treble side what's the, what's the how would you deal with that take off the frets and, and plane the board so sometimes we could plane the top of the fret so level the fret mm-hmm. in the in the on the bass side to push in a little bit of relief on that side and then everything kind of works out right but a lot of it is just I'm going to have to live with, if you're just doing a setup mm-hmm. and somebody says, I have maybe maximum 80 bucks right. to put into this, <laughs> I would say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to spend time on leveling a few frets and I'm going to shim the saddle or lower the saddle in a way that allows you to have the right height where you need it right. to get past all those issues. And then we might level the upper frets too, on that treble side, so you can get past the upper frets and still play clean. So you can, yeah. The, well, here's another thing I didn't really realize. I th- assumed frets had to be sort of the same height throughout their length. Again, ideally, ideally that but, it would be. But you can play with that a you little bit. You can play with it. Um, 
I've seen multiple situations where somebody says, I think I've got a high fret and it's a low fret. <laughs> it's the next, it's the fret in front of that high fret, right? In quotes, that's actually low. And once you get that up, you're, the whole fretboard is in, in line. Right. The top of the fret is even. So we do a bit of lifting frets and accommodating with glue and, you know, masking it so it's not obvious that right. this fret is high. So, but we're talking sometimes imperceptible to the eye changes. Right. But stuff you could measure with a caliper. Well, that that's the thing. It's so, you know, the the... the the distances and the heights and stuff are so small. Mm -hmm. You can have good doing, eyes. <laughs> yeah, but the measurement stuff is is great to have a caliper on hand or a mm -hmm. dial indicator that you can really say, yes, we've got five thousands of relief. That's what the factory told you is mm -hmm. stock, you know. So we tried to bring it back to stock. Um, somebody might want a refret and we'll say, can you bring us your favorite guitar that you're used to? Mm -hmm. Because you might have read about jumbo frets, but the guitar you play all the time that you feel the best on actually has small frets. So this was another thing I wanted to talk about was frets, fret size, mm -hmm. fret wire size. Sure. And yeah, why, is, why are there different sizes and what do the different sizes help or sure. hurt? I think a lot of it is what was traditionally available. So an early Martin would have had a certain size fret. I don't know the reason why they came up with a particular size, but I think if you were coming from, if you look at like the evolution of the fret wire, it started as gut that was tied on, <laughs> right? So I didn't know that. Lutes and all sorts of otherwise uh, non-Western instruments would have a tied-on gut fret. That was so Viola da Gamba would be one example of, you know, still using tied-on gut So they're, it's, they're movable. They would be movable, and they're small. I mean, we're talking the size of a classical guitar G string, mm -hmm. which would be 24 thousandths of an inch or 30 thousandths. So do they tie them in the back? Yeah, it would be tied. It's kind of on the side. There's a particular way of tying it so, so that it doesn't, it doesn't come loose, but you can still kind of move it, and it tightens if you go upwards. Mm -hmm. You only have small variation, but enough to be able to fine-tune your, your intonation, mm -hmm. too. Huh. Um, so at some point, the banjo wire was a certain size, quite small, mandolin wire, very small. I think a lot of this was just what can we make right. for this price? Uh -huh. I can imagine that being a big reason. Uh -huh. And then probably as simple as somebody saying, well, if I had more height, I could, I would be able to feel the fret better. I would know where I'm, where my hand position should be easier. So a taller fret, you can feel that a little more with the tip of your finger. It's not so much about looking, you can feel it. Right. It's just perceptible by the tip of your finger. Does it make 
I mean, some people think that jumbo frets make things easier to play. Yeah, so a legato, you know, heavy metal guitar player that wants to be really fluid, or even a jazz guitar player, might benefit from having a higher fret. You're not pressing as hard because the immediacy of the moment that your fret, or your string, is in contact with the fret, that is a perfectly clear note. You can hold the string lighter. Your left hand would potentially not be as fatigued. So Well, then I want some jumbo <clears throat> frets. You might want some. <laughs> what I see with the smaller frets is it might be somebody who's used to playing them, and they've got a hard grip on their left hand, and they're used to actually feeling the fretboard. And a legato player doesn't want to be encumbered by their fingertips hitting the fretboard. Right. If you bend huh. a strap, you might notice with a particular size fret that bend the string of a strap. You know, you're soloing an E and you're up high and you bend and your pinky or third finger is dragging against the fretboard. If you went to a taller fret, you would have no drag. It's all note and tone. So why doesn't everybody do that? Just a personal preference? <clears throat> I think it's a personal preference. I kind of fall somewhere in between. I don't really like the smallest traditional wire, which is 80 thousandths by 43 thousandths. So 80 in width and 43 in height. The height is almost the same as my favorite wire, 47 by 95. Oh, 95 I love that wire. 47. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's just tall enough that you start to lose that finger contact and it's just wide enough that you start to get that perception of, I'm, I'm not, I'm feel, I feel it. Right. I'm not lost in, I'm holding a G, but I don't know where my fingers are. And again, that's a small change. Yeah. Well, I, I had you uh, replace the frets on my mandolin mm -hmm. to to smaller wire simply because I couldn't get my fingers in the frets way up high. Sure, the, yeah, the wider fret, you would lessen your, your actual fretting space yeah. for your fingers. So that's, I mean, that was just a practical decision. Absolutely. Um, though I was playing a mandolin last night where they had the big fat fret wire and it was pretty easy to play. So, I mean, I don't know, I don't know. Yep. Yeah, the fretless wonder <laughs> sort of idea of Gibson, you know, it was, they were using a low, wide wire, and several people would level them over the years, and then you have a practically non-existent fret wire, uh -huh. but it's still there. Uh -huh. You barely have a crown, which is the peak of the fret. You, ideally, you would have a peak that's on center, because that's the closest to the proper intonation that you could get. Right. But these things, people were very fluid moving over them because it's just low, but you still feel it. It's just one of these weird huh? things that people, it's like in the lexicon of the vintage guitar language. Oh, oh a fretless wonder. I want you to... Because uh... they're just so, they're almost not there. But the guitar still works. Hi, folks. Sorry to interrupt the show, but we'll get back to Trevor in just a second. 
I want to let you know that these podcasts require an enormous investment of time on my part. Each show takes about 40 hours to put together. That includes the research, travel, recording, editing, mixing, time to manage the websites, the rewards, and the social media. By contributing as little as $2 a month, you'll be helping me keep the podcast alive. Go to patreon.com slash jimhenry, or for a one-time only donation, go to protipsformusicians.com. Every little bit helps. What kind of frets do I have on here? <laughs> Should we measure them? I don't know. Can you just look at them? Or... Like, so he's got my Nickerson guitar right now. Over to the bench with his caliper. I would say I know that they've been leveled. Because you did it, probably. They have a, you know, you can't get a perfect shape. You can get as perfect as your technical prowess or right. <laughs> tool allows you to get. But as the frets get leveled and lowered, there's always going to be some change that you have to say, this is, this is great, the peak is fine. Right. You might have a slightly harder edge. At the towards the bottom. Right, so width go. is eighty-two thousandths, and height is forty-seven thousandths. So is that a pretty typical? Pretty typical for like an acoustic guitar. Sort of down the d down the middle, kind of. Yep, and probably just a hair on the taller side for for an acoustic, but that will allow. A little more time for for leveling too. Right. So yeah, and yeah, the advantage is that, that saves you from having to refret the thing. Right. So we might be able to level this height twice. Right. Where a forty-three thousandth or forty thousandths small wire, you're lucky if you catch it before the fret is played through. We've been using Jeskar fret wire, which seems to be harder, despite the technical. Like harder steel or whatever? Right, it's, it's nickel silver, so like certain metal content has more hardness. Or We do a lot of stainless steel refrets, which would be the much longer life. Because the, the steel string going against nickel silver, the string is always going to win eventually. The steel string against a steel fret, a little bit better chance of longevity. So why don't we just use steel frets all the time? Expense? There's <clears throat> a higher expense. It's harder for, on the tools, so your tools get worn out because it's a file that would be fine for years on nickel silver, which is softer that over the course of 10 stainless steel fret levels might be damaged because of the hardness of that right. steel. Right. So there's a perception that stainless steel being harder has more treble. Has more treble? And that people say they sound different. Uh -huh. And You don't buy it. I don't buy it. We've done so many jobs you hand the instrument back with the stainless steel and people are just happy that they're smooth and level <laughs> and 
it really is, there's quite a difference in smoothness once they're po high polished that it's hard to, it's hard to say, yep, in three months, you're going to still feel that with right. nickel silver stainless, you will still feel the same thing. Um, it's mostly on the new guitars that I've had no, I can't, I wouldn't be able to tell you if they were stainless or not. Sometimes on a refret, maybe on an acoustic, I might hear something. I, uh, I usually say it's about stiffness. Mm -hmm. That's what you're hearing. You're hearing more trouble because the neck is straighter. It's a stiffer feel. I could be wrong, but it's just acquired knowledge right. of, hey, I did, I did this work. I heard the guitar before and after. I really can't hear. Can't anything. hear the difference. What about? Uh, have you ever <coughs> heard of uh, uh, steel uh, end pins? Metal metal end pins. I've done brass. Brass, um, yeah. As for the bridge pins. For the bridge pins, yeah. Yeah, brass. I feel like weight can help. So Do you feel like it really affects the tone? I think it affects the tone. It's just one of those, again, a subtle change. Like It's a little bit of a... So if the ball end is, is against the brass pin and the string is against the brass pin and it's squeezing in on wood and it's got a bone saddle all of those things kind of coupled together. It's mostly about the coupling. Maybe the brass kind of compresses, the string compresses into the brass enough that it's it's no longer, it's kind of like acting as one. Right. The, it, it becomes part of the bridge. I'm right. trying to figure out the right way to say it. No, I know what you're talking about. Whereas a plastic pin, it's compressing around it, but there's nothing inherently acoustic about plastic. Right. So if you're adding in something that's filling space in the way that glue would fill space or the fret tang being pressed into the fret slot would fill space, if all of those spaces are eliminated, you're working with solids again. Right. And that's got to be good. <laughs> you would think. <clears throat> no air encumbering anything. Right. Well, um... Another thing about the frets I wanted to ask you about. I've I've seen and played a few guitars that have a, a zero fret. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a thing, right? Yep. Uh, so why don't why doesn't everybody do that? I think that's a. So uh, can you explain and what that's that an is? That's an aesthetic thing that I think keeps people from using it. I think you look at it and you see see a space between the nut and the fret, the zero fret, and you're going, that looks kind of weird. And for the most part, <clears throat> I would say that's the reason why it's not universally accepted. It's kind of one of the smartest things I could think of doing. Because it really helps with intonation, right? Isn't that? It, I don't see it as much about intonation as tone. So if, if your nut is made of the same material as your fret, which the zero fret is where the strings are passing, it's the last point that the strings pass over the fretboard where you have an open string. So you're hearing what you would hear if you hit the first fret. Right. 
you're hearing open, first, second, third, all of those are the same material. Right. The next best step to that would be having a fret as your saddle. So every note should be identical in tone. So you might hear sort of like a woolly, dull, open string with a nut that, a guitar that may have not had maintenance on it, and then they've changed string gauge so many times that there's literally like chips of bone and dirt Uh under the nut slot. If we clear that out and get good contact of string to whatever the nut material is, you have a bright, clear string again. None of those things would happen if you had a zero fret. There's no room for anything to collect in a slot. Right. Your just string is passing right over that fret. Intonation-wise, it's it's exactly the same point. So the top of that fret is the same as the front of the nut. Right. So unless you move that position, which is something you can do to change intonation, it wouldn't it wouldn't be any different. Mm. So uh, but string height can change intonation. So the fret being identical would be the literally the lowest you could pot- potentially get your string height. Right. So that open string versus your fretted note, second fret, they're all going to be roughly the same. The string will be about the same height over the fret in front of it and behind it, in front of it. So your intonation should be fairly close. So why don't you do it? Good question. I get. I just haven't tried. I'm one of the people that looks at it and goes, "That looks weird." <laughs> I mean, I've I've never seen it on an acoustic guitar. I've seen it on an electric guitar. There's definitely acoustics with it. I can't think of a name off the top of my head, but mm-hmm. yeah, a bunch of electric guitars have it. I'll have to give it a shot. <laughs> There's well, really I mean, no, no reason not to. No pressure. But yeah. <laughs> no, it's a. I I think anytime I've played one. I haven't found an, any inherent issue. Right. Is yeah. it is it a is it, is it a topic of debate among luthiers? And well, it changes a few things. So I would actually have to put the. I would have to have the nut. The fretboard would be longer. To, have, enough space to make a slot. Right. Put the fret in. Have material behind it that a nut is touching so you're adding maybe a quarter of an inch in length in the wrong scenario that could become a guitar that doesn't fit in a case anymore Uh, uh if you already have a long headstock like a 12 string and you're adding a quarter of an inch of material to the length of the neck you might end up in a position where your guitar won't fit in a case well let's not do it on a 12 string then right but (laughs) For most things, that a quarter inch shouldn't shouldn't make much of a difference. But that's yeah, quarter inch in terms of scale is a lot, right? Yeah, that's from being in tune to not in tune. Yeah. If you were misplaced your bridge or something right. like that. But yeah, in this case, it's just the material that you would need to do that task. How do you how do you recommend cleaning the body and the neck of the guitar? So the first part of it would be to have a cloth, which might be an old cotton t-shirt, 
or one of the a polishing cloth right. bought from Planet Waves or whomever. Right. They're all pretty much the same sort of like fine microfiber. Anytime you go and play, ideally wipe down the guitar if you've sweat, if you spilled your beer, anything like that. Wipe down the surface where your arm was in contact or your hand. But even still, that's, yeah, I'm thinking about particularly the summer, you know. Yeah. So... Then the next step would be looking at the cleaners that are available for guitar, which generally don't have any wax or soap or silicone in them. Things that might actually stay on the surface of the guitar, which could potentially collect more dust right. or sweat long-term. So I like the Jeskar cleaner, the Planet Waves cleaner. So that Planet Waves is a D'Addario company. Yeah. And... You know, they're eight bucks and might last you five years. Well, all I know is when I bring my guitar in to get it worked on and I get it back, it's always nice and clean and shiny. And like, I can't get it to do that normally. It's usually the, one of those cleaners, but just being really diligent about I can't actually stop moving until it's clean. Sometimes if you stop, it settles, like all the dirt settles. If the finish is old enough and sort of, it's already got enough grit in it. We won't even try to clean it because all of those things are just met, you know, pushed into the lacquer and melted in. I'm afraid that's what's happening with my guitar. It's definitely possible. The next step would be doing a fine polish. Stuart Mac has one, Stuart McDonald, that is sort of like a fine guitar polish. There's, a, there's an abrasive in it you would apply it and then wipe it back. And it's actually cr doing some sort of buffing. Uh -huh. I use one that's called Finesse It by 3M. Again, you might spend $28 on a container of it, but you'd have it forever if you have four or five guitars. Because you don't need much. And you're not doing any damage, really. But, you know, if you left it on and didn't polish it back, it might sit there and not come off again so you right. have to kind of do it as a a fairly quick thing say that say the name of it again finesse it finesse it <clears throat> just like it's like a shampoo or something yeah <laughs> and then mcguire's or Meguiar's, i'm not sure how to pronounce it i've heard it both ways it would be like a car polish but they have one called mirror glaze and it's that last final polish on a car mm -hmm. or a piece of plastic It'd be the same as applying it to any number of guitars. If it's French polished shellac, you don't want to do any of these things. You would want to take it to somebody who, who knows how to stuff, do that yeah. touch up. Yeah. You just want to keep it clean. But for the most part, nitrocellulose, as long as it doesn't have cracks in it, like a, a 58 whatever, <laughs> don't take buffing compound and start rubbing it in you may see white lines where you previously saw cool checking. Uh -huh. <laughs> they might actually get filled with this compound and you'll never okay. get it out. So it becomes a little bit of a guessing game or, again, like the acquired knowledge of like, oh, we're not going to touch this one. A really dirty old nitrocellulose finish, no, 
we're not going to clean yeah, it. Yeah, you want to leave it alone. There are other solutions that people have come up with that work, things with mineral oil and a little bit of, uh, I don't know, I won't go into it so <laughs> that people don't start making it. But you can find sort of some of these solutions that are fairly benign mm-hmm. that will clean off a Martin and make it look perfect. Yeah, I don't want it to look perfect, but it does, you know, I, I, it gets pretty hot and sweaty in the summertime, and it, I feel like I, it, my guitar just never really recovers from that. Yeah, I, I wipe think it down. taking it out of the case when you're back and making sure the case dries out, we see that a lot, where you put it back in the case and it's like, ah, oh, it's, it's doing that thing again. It's like, oh, man, like, your actually case is wet from, <laughs> from that same gig. Uh-huh. And the, you just put the guitar back in, and the right. guitar is taking up the moisture from whatever's left in the case. Yeah. I really like the Humidipax from Planet Waves. It would do the same for your case as it does for your guitar. It's releasing moisture and absorbing it as needed to maintain 40 to 50% humidity. Well, that, that, I'm glad you brought that up. That's another question. Is that we should be striving for 40 to 50% humidity most of the time? And I would say on the northeast, uh, maximum 50. Um, there are instruments that come in the shop, and I in the winter, I'm 35 to 40%, like really tight window Mm -hmm. if I work on a guitar if I had my shop at 50% and you brought in a guitar from your home that's at 30 and you developed a top crack that winter I do the repair this environment is re-moisturizing the instrument I might even go further and like put the instrument in a bag with a humidifier to get that level back up so the top the wood swells again to complete the repair on the crack you take it home it dries back out to 30% and you've got a crack a quarter of an inch to the left of that last one so if that's why I don't necessarily go wild with humidity in the winter I'm not trying to take it to the same point it may be for two months in the summer right Um, So so I've found that in the Northeast, most of my guitars are staying here actually in relatively dry spots in California. I happen to have a few clients out there that have been loyal and, you know, happy to be working with them. I, if I was to build a guitar for somebody in Georgia, I would have to increase the humidity in my work environment. Huh. That's interesting. Um, we had, so back to what I was saying, If I go too high here, you take the guitar out and you're not paying the same attention to humidity, the same issues are going to happen. We see instruments that may have been set up six weeks ago, but they go on tour and they're playing in Canada, Right. come back, and it's as if I didn't do the work because the environment took so much of a toll. Right. But if you're playing at home, and you do the same thing. You might have a room humidifier going, and you put the guitar away, and it's got a case humidifier. You're probably in good shape. Whatever work that we're doing here is going to remain when you take it home. Right. But there are instruments that come in either here or another shop. Maybe somebody just moved to town. I just got this set up, but I moved from Virginia. Right. And now 
their first three weeks in 20 degree nights and not really paying attention to how their new house is. You've got a guitar, the neck is either four bowed, the action's really high, the top might be sunken. Right. The neck and the top are working in tandem to keep your action where it was designed to be. But if it dries out and the top sinks, your action is suddenly low. So there's a lot that goes into maintaining humidity. Well, I mean, I I run a humidifier in my I have a studio and I have, you know, I'll keep the instruments out on a wall basically mm-hmm. and keep it humidified. But then yeah, I go on the road and you know, that I don't I don't pay much attention on the I don't like have a humidifier in the case or anything like sure. that. Maybe that's a mistake. I think it's a good idea. I made the mistake of saying recently to someone or I guess it was a couple of years ago, I said you know, I'm not so sure that you have to worry about it on this guitar. We've I've seen this guitar every year for four years. Mm-hmm. It's the action hasn't changed once. This year, it took its toll. <laughs> the action was really high. All of the things, the fret ends were popping out, mm-hmm. so the wood got extraordinarily dry. But for the last five years, that it was, was not a problem. It's not an old guitar, it's not a new guitar. It's probably over 10 years old. It's not just the first time it ever saw dryness. It just reached that point. It was right. like, this is it, enough. I'm done. Uh-huh. And it was one of those moments where it was like, I, sh- I shouldn't have said, don't, <laughs> it's not going to happen. It may not happen. It should have been, you need to be aware that this could happen at any moment (laughs) and you should probably have a case humidifier and be Uh paying attention to it. Is it as much a concern on electric guitars? It really is in terms of the neck movement. Most of the neck, yeah. Yeah, so there are new instruments that we see frequently that the neck is immobile it's so dry that if you tighten the truss rod, you're going to break the truss rod. Oh, wow. Because the wood will fight you until it's re-moisturized. So that's the type of instrument we would put in a bag that's sealed. Or I've heard of people getting, like, one of those uh, closets that's just, you know, you could have it in your room. It's a wardrobe, but mm-hmm. it's a, basically a plastic box mm-hmm. uh, that you zip up. It's got a frame. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of getting one of those because we have five guitars at a time that might need humidification, that just leaving them in the room isn't enough to close a crack or solve the problem. Generally, it is, but sometimes it's extreme. So how long does it take to re-humidify a guitar? Fastest, I would say four or five days. Sometimes you see a change overnight, but to have it actually be... A constant where the wood is now back to some sort of equilibrium, I'd give it a five, seven days. Wow. Then we'll do the work. Then we can actually accomplish a job. And then you have to maintain that again right. when you leave. Once it gets so out. it's we would sell a case humidifier and it would leave in that state. Yeah, I might have to get one of those from you. We're sold out. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, winter time. Yeah, the I think it is a big deal on electrics. I always like to think that 
the older the guitar, the less likely this will happen because you're you've encountered so many different situations and the wood has taken on and right. depleted in moisture. But then the oddball will come in that the neck won't move. We just have to give it time. Generally, if the neck won't move, we'll loosen the truss rod and let the truss rod also relax, I guess. So it's the neck isn't fighting the truss rod anymore. Right. So everything kind of can just chill out. And then once the moisture's back, we'll be able to move the neck just like it was brand new. I find uh, <clears throat> with my acoustic, my Nickerson, if I am in an environment that's very humid, like a lot of body heat and sweat and stuff like that, I really notice the action change. Yeah, like, pretty quickly. Yeah, like in, in the, you know... Yeah, like so, it was fine when I left home and I play the gig, and it's like, man, this is hard to play because it got high. Absolutely, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, is that There's, is that a common thing? I guess it's a common thing. I think anytime you're gluing one piece of wood to another, you're, and then you have finish on the neck, the back of the neck, the mahogany, and no finish on the fretboard. There's there's room for moisture to enter right. the picture. You could potentially stabilize it, I suppose, by oiling the neck more frequently, but you wouldn't want it to be absorbed with oil, right? Where you could potentially hurt the guitar eventually. The, I wanted to ask you about that, about con like conditioning the neck, uh, which I, I, I mean, I have some of that uh, F1 oil. Have you ever heard of this? I haven't it's heard a, of it's it. A, fretboard conditioning yep. type oil. Yeah, how often would you recommend doing that? If you're if you got a lot of dirt and stuff on the fretboard, it's possible that it's already sufficiently <laughs> hydrated, so uh -huh. to speak. Anytime you're changing the strings, if you're like a once a month string changer, it's not a bad idea just to kind of wipe it in a little bit. Wipe it's sort of like a wipe on and wipe off. Right. You don't want Put it to a little to be, bit on and then yeah, wipe it off. But kind of an every six months thing is probably more so not accurate. A lot. Yeah. yeah, not okay. a lot. Okay. But we'll see an instrument that has sort of a whitish hue, a grayish hue. That's a a given. It's got to be moisturized. And I bet it will, if we had left it overnight on its own without making setup adjustments, it may have done some subtle mm -hmm. moves just by not being so dry. What about, I've read somewhere about coconut oil, using that on a neck, is that? I think that would be fine. Coconut oil, walnut oil. Walnut oil actually hardens a little bit, so that's a pretty good thing for the surface. Mineral oil is, mineral oil, lemon oil, as long as they don't have strong um, other products, like you don't want to have anything with acetone Right. Or benzene, probably. You know, anything that's like potentially toxic to you. Right. Your fingers are touching it. <laughs> yeah. But any of those things will also affect, or alcohol will affect um, the surface of the finish. So if it, by accident you put too much on the cloth and wiped it down and then wiped the top to clean it off, you could screw up your lacquer. So you do want something that's like a known. Bore oil is another one that we used a lot. It's like from bores? For the, it's B-O-R-E, for the <laughs> inside of the bore of your clarinet. Oh. 
That's a good one. I don't have a clarinet. <laughs> you can still buy boar oil, thankfully. What What about uh, the? Just one more thing about cleaning uh, the the back of the neck. I think again that's whatever cleaner that you use on that, the body that you would use on the body. Same idea. Same thing. That's probably more likely to be. You should wipe that off before you put the guitar away. Yeah. And that's gonna help. It'll go a long way, yeah. just doing that one step. Yeah, I usually do that. But uh, yeah, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was pickups. Mm -hmm. And do you, what do you have for acoustic guitars? Uh, do you have anything that you recommend? What do you like? If the acoustic guitar is truly a great sounding acoustic on its own, I would recommend like the most. Uh, the least invasive pickup. So not an undersaddle pickup. A K&K &K Pure Mini is my favorite. Mm -hmm. There are three transducers that get glued or stuck to the bridge plate, which is the under the bridge on the inside of the instrument. And the placement of those allows an even pick, picking up of sound. There are three placed under the three sets of strings and they're not they're not that expensive either they're not that expensive the install requires a little finesse but also isn't the most challenging thing once you've done a few of them so that price is lower mm -hmm. you would just drill for an end pin jack which i think is a good idea for someone who is going to play in public mm -hmm. i hate seeing a sound hole pickup that has a cord dangling out of the sound hole I mean, the potential for damage is <laughs> yeah, outrageous. Yeah. yeah. So if we see that, I'll recommend, hey, how often do you use this? All the time. Would you like me to wire hardwire it to your end pin? Right. Sure. <laughs> um, so the next option, which I've really enjoyed lately, is the LR Bags Lyric. It's the transducer element which is a microphone and transducer. So it's transducer is picking up vibration and the microphone is the sound waves, air pressure. Right. Um, that is stuck in the same place as you would the K&K. &K. And it's got a volume control and a fine tune adjustment for the mic level. So you kind of get two things out of that pickup, right. the mic and the transducer. It's a little bit more treble, higher treble content tonally when you turn the mic up beyond where you really would need it. Right. But if you had an outboard preamp with EQ, you could probably take some part of that high end back out and really come up with like, I feel like I'm in front of a microphone. Mm -hmm. So that's another really good one. The next step would be the LR Bags Anthem and either... I don't know that one. So it's an undersaddle transducer, which is in the saddle slot, and the pressure of the strings over the saddle is pushing on this, and you're getting a lot of low end, maybe a little more low end than you would get out of a Lyric, like a full, deep low end that you could add EQ mm -hmm. and boost it. And it's very, it's got a volume control and a tone control, so you can dial out some of that treble from the microphone. Um, I really like, that's my 
that's my like stage recommendation. You're going to be with a band. You need it to be clear and not feedback. Right. There's a drummer behind you and you know, you got some competition. Right. That's a great pickup. Well, that's the thing about the lyric. Was that the second one talking mm-hmm. about with the microphone in there? I I bet it does sound great if you're playing by yourself. Yeah. I or was It's really wonderful. But as soon as you ha- add drums or bass into I that haven't mix. been in that situation, but I can imagine that there could be Right. The potential for it is higher. Or proximity to uh, your um, PA or right. monitor. So I, ha- I have the K&K uh, in my acoustic, but I also, if I'm ever playing with drums, I will, I'll switch, swap out and put in the Sunrise, yeah, that I got a long time ago, which so is great for playing with drums. Absolutely. And I feel like that pickup has a lot of depth. It's got character. Yeah. That is acoustic. Yeah. You know, I don't know what the magic is in that. I bought a pickup winder and I haven't used it because (laughs) the knowledge about all of those parts, why Alnico 2 magnets are different than Alnico 5s and how many winds of this gauge wire, I found it overwhelming. And I know that people do it really well and have a solid understanding of that. We'll leave it to them. We will leave it to them. (laughs) And... I really like that part of it, like trying to discover what's going to work right for this guitar. Jay Maskus uses the Sunrise sound hole pickups mm-hmm. and uses guitar pedals. Mm-hmm. It will react like a magnetic, right. you know, a, a, an electric guitar magnetic pickup with pedals and things like that. So you can, re- it's really versatile. Yeah, it's a nice thing. I would but- say the same goes for like the Seymour Duncan Mag mic. It's their version of it uh-huh. with a microphone element attached. That's a really cool pickup. These things are, you kind of have to gauge, do you want something in the sound hole? Right. Is the payoff en- like good enough right. to say, yeah, that's, that's it? I'm always plugged in, so why not? It, they take up more room. So if you, if you were playing acoustic gig- gigs too, you're removing the Sunrise pickup. Right. That's the, you have to kind of get good at making those adjustments. Yeah, yeah, I sort of, yeah, I figured out how to do it so it's not too big of of a pain. One thing I, uh, this may or may not make the podcast, but I uh, I have the K&K pickup, but I got this uh, preamp called uh, Tone Dexter. Have you heard of this I haven't heard of it. By Audio Sprockets. It's, um, it allows you to make your own tone print of any, any instrument that you, any acoustic instrument that you want and, okay. st- and store it. So you take, like I have these nice mics, so you, you plug it in and it basically does this test. You play and you put the nice mic in front of it and, you, and then when you just, and then you, you get that all set and then you plug your pickup in, it basically sounds like that mic. Wow. It's really cool. That's great. It's, it's the closest that a pickup has ever sounded to this actual guitar. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And That's you can amazing. do it with a... You know, so I have I have prints of different mics with this guitar and with my mandolin and with the dobro. Yeah, all in one thing. So, so it's like reading that EQ and making adjustments and yeah, that so like yeah, like you know the Fishman tone you yeah. know, print stuff. But you get to do it yourself. That's so pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. In here, we'll recommend that people bring if they're playing a Fishman loudbox or something mm-hmm. at their gig, bring it here so that we can hear it and know this is what it sounds like with this pickup and right. here's 
hears it after. Right. So you know this room listening to your amp. And that's really been helpful. Someone brought in their... Um, it's like a tower. It's a Fishman tower. Right, for, like the Bose you, yeah, kind of thing. It's yeah. the same idea. Yeah. You can sing through it. It's a small PA. Right. And we did... We swapped an LR Bags pickup into one of his other guitars from another, put in a K&K, and installed a different LR Bags. So we heard all three of them in different guitars in the room, same level, you know, and f heard the differences. And then we're able to say, what are we going to do to change this guitar to have more bass or something? So there was... It was really useful yeah. to have that kind of technology in here. And yeah. I think I could see it being even a step further if that same person could do the tone print and know that his J45 with the LR bags is going to sound like the Martin with the LR bags. And at least you get that continuity. You, will, you, know, you want comfort, right? right? But you also want versatility and you don't want it to be bland. Right. Like having the same tone throughout the whole set, even if you're picking up two different guitars. Right. Might not be the funnest thing. Right. You know, <laughs> but I can see how that'd be really useful. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool thing. I think, I think that's a pretty good place to stop. We've cool. covered everything. <laughs> Quite a lot. <laughs> and I appreciate you taking the time to do this. So thank you very much for being on the uh, Pro Tips podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for listening to the Pro Tips for Musicians podcast. To find out more about Trevor, visit him online at HealyGuitars.com. To order your copy of the Pro Tips book or to make a one-time only donation to the podcast, go to ProTipsForMusicians.com. To become a sustaining podcast patron, go to Patreon.com slash Jim Henry. Thanks for listening. <laughs>